Welcome, welcome, welcome into A Seminarian and Friends, a podcast where my friends ask me their questions about Jesus, Scripture, the Church, or theology. My name is Kevin Gray, the seminarian who's probably in a class that addresses their quandaries. Today, we are looking at the biblical personification of wisdom found in Proverbs as a woman and why God through Solomon chose to do that. If you're unfamiliar, uh, or if you are familiar, I would invite you now to flip to Proverbs in your Bible with me uh, so that we can get a little bit of context as to where this question came from. So I am in Proverbs chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 20 through 33. I'm reading in the NRSV right now, unlike my normal ESV. So little bit of warning for that if you are reading along in your ESV. So this is Proverbs chapter 1, 20 through 33 for the context of this question. It says this, Wisdom cries out in the street. In the squares, she raises her voice. At the busiest corner, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing, and fools hate knowledge? Give heed to my reproof. I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make my words known to you, because I have called, and you refused. I have stretched out my hand, and no one heeded, because you have ignored all my counsel, and would have none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when panic strikes you, when panic strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of Yahweh, would have none of my control of my counsel, and despised all my reproof. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way, and be sated with their own devices. For waywardness kills the simple, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But those who listen to me will be secure and will live at ease, without dread of disaster. So here's the first example we get in the book of Proverbs of this personification that Solomon does of wisdom, and he does it as a woman calling out in the streets, inviting people to come to her to live and to to find the paths of of wisdom and of life uh, that are contrasted against the ways of folly and death. So there are a few things going on here. The first one is that wisdom is a grammatically feminine noun in Hebrew, which is the language that Solomon wrote Proverbs in and and most of the Old Testament is written in. Wisdom is feminine grammatically. And then when they translated the Old Testament, including Proverbs, into Greek for what's called the Septuagint, wisdom is also feminine in Greek. Now, a little bit of a, a side note here, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek for the Septuagint, they included and wrote some additional books called the Apocrypha or the 
Deuterocanon, the second canon. And it's, it's books that Catholics believe are authoritative, but Protestants, uh, myself included, do not regard as authoritative for a, a host of reasons. Uh, and we can talk about that at a different time. When they wrote these apocryphal books that were written in Greek, there were a couple more of these wisdom books. One of them is the Wisdom of Solomon, and the other is the Wisdom of Jesus, son of Sirach, different Jesus from our Lord and Savior. In those wisdom books, wisdom is also referred to as a she, also personified as a she, and it continued the, the grammar from Hebrew and Greek and the the theme that Solomon had started when he wrote Proverbs of personifying wisdom as a woman. But there's more to the story about why wisdom is personified as a woman, as a lady, than just a little bit of grammar. So if you look back to Proverbs chapter 1, I want to highlight a few verses. First, in verse 8, Solomon, who, who's speaking, says, Hear, my child, your father's instruction, and do not reject your mother's teaching. And then he goes on, and in verse 10 again, he says, My child, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And he goes on. And then in verse 15, he repeats again, My child, do not walk in their way. So with, with these verses and, and other verses throughout the rest of the book, Solomon is addressing his sons. He's, he's instructing them in the way that they should go. The picture is that these are sons of the king, so they're noblemen. They're, they're young men who are getting ready to fully enter adulthood and enter life as heirs of a kingdom and full adults. So Solomon wants to teach these young men how to live well, and living well means living wisely. So he's gathered his sons to him and he's addressing them directly. He is aware that young men are attracted to women, generally. And women, for young men, are tempting. Women, for young men, are attractive. And that's a good thing. And it's a way that, that his sons would understand what he means as he kind of holds out what's going to happen in the world as they continue to age. So he, he paints this picture where there are ways of life that are good, and he personifies those as a wise woman. And there are ways of life that are not actually ways of life at all, but actually ways of death that lead to death that he personifies as a temptress, as a woman of folly. These boys who are of age to look for a wife are being taught to, one, in part, you know, it is it is help for looking for a wife, but, but that's just the rhetorical device to help them understand life as a whole and where they should go in their lives. So we get that in chapters 7 
and 8 primarily. So if you flip over there to me, I'm not going to read all of it uh, because I, I want you to really take it in yourself. But, but in chapter 7, he starts again with my child. And then he paints, again, he paints this picture where the, there's this older man watching out of his window on the street. And he sees a prostitute on the street beckoning people to come into her because her husband is away for the weekend or for some period of time and she wants to enjoy the night with a man and so she entices this passerby who just gets caught up in his foolish desires and it says this path that he has fallen on or taken leads to death so that's one option that Solomon is painting for his young men. This is the way of death. It's a prostitute, a, a woman of folly and foolishness, and you don't want to go after her. And then we get to chapter 8, and we, we get a completely different picture. We get a picture of wisdom. We get this personification of Lady Wisdom as Jason DeRoshi, who is a very, very phenomenal Old Testament scholar, describes her. And she calls to all the people. What, what she does is not in secret at night, trying to keep her actions hidden from people, but it's open in the light in the day for people to see, which is a theme that some of the New Testament authors like John and Paul pick up on. So she's inviting people during the day to, to come to her and taste life and, and see life. As he's describing these two different ways of going about life, again, for his sons to understand what he's trying to say, he paints them these ways as women and tries to instruct his sons to follow the right path, the right woman, and that would be Lady Wisdom. Now, a another question that comes up with this comes from some verses in the New Testament, like 1 Corinthians 24, where Paul claims that Jesus is the wisdom of God. So then we, we just got this metaphor that wisdom, which God describes as creating or setting up before the foundation of the world, and, and by wisdom, he created the world. And then Paul comes along and says, Jesus is the wisdom of God. So how do we reconcile this? Is the Bible, is Solomon, is God calling Jesus a woman? The answer to that is no. First, let me say a word about typology. Uh, so if you've heard anything about types and shadows throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament authors were given insight by the Spirit of God, by the Holy Spirit, about the things that were to come in the last days. So if you've been with me for a while, you've heard me say over and over and over again, Genesis 3.15 is like the thesis for the whole Bible. 
where Adam and Eve had just taken the, the fruit from the forbidden tree and God had confronted them. And God told Eve that her offspring would destroy the serpent. So from that point on, the people in time and space, as history was, was being written, and the readers of the canon are looking for who this serpent slayer is going to be. And the way we, we do that, or the way the, the authors did that, was by God giving us types and shadows of who this ultimate serpent slayer would be and we know that that ultimate serpent serpent slayer was christ was jesus christ of nazareth two thousand years ago so all along we are supposed to be looking at these clues these types these shadows so that we understand what god is going to do in these last days and who this christ is going to be so we get people like noah who is a type of christ because he led his family through the baptism of judgment in the worldwide flood or we get say joshua who also led a people into uh, a through a baptism of water into the promised land and conquered enemies and so Together, we, we see that, that there's going to be judgment involved with the Christ. There's going to be uh, a possession of a, of a new place, of an inheritance. And, and there's going to be some conquering of enemies that, that the Christ is going to lead. And all throughout the Old Testament, we get lots of these types and shadows. Now, I bring all of that up. Because Solomon's Proverbs is a shadow of Christ. So let me, let me point you back to Proverbs 1, verse 1. It's probably not a verse that you have spent much time studying, but it's full of messianic promise, and it's, it was written down for our instruction. So we're going to take a look at it. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Just a simple introduction uh, to tell us what the book is about and who it's by. So it's by Solomon. But after that, we get son of David, king of Israel. And those two phrases, son of David and king of Israel, are just pregnant with messianic hope and promise and weight. In 2 Samuel, I talked about this in a podcast a couple weeks ago about the, the splitting of the kingdom of Israel. In 2 Samuel, God comes to David and says, I am going to establish you and your kingdom forever. So your son will sit on the throne forever. He will be king forever, your son. So when we read Son of David, that should spark something in our minds that, oh, that's part of the fulfillment of God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel. It's messianic because we know that th throughout, the, throughout the scripture, 
we, we get this picture that the Messiah or the Christ uh, is going to fulfill the office of king. And so we, we get that in Isaiah and, and lots of other different places. So son of David should perk our messianic ears up. The problem is, if again, if you, you listen to the, the podcast about the splitting of the kingdom of Israel, then you know that Solomon was not the son of David. He was the son of David. He was David's son who reigned. He was king of Israel. All of those are facts, but he was not the son of David. He was not the king of Israel. And we know that because he sinned with money, women, and army. And we know that the son of David, the king of Israel, the Christ, the serpent slayer, was going to come and be sinless and be perfect. So when we read something about this son of David, we should understand that this is kind of talking about Saul, like it's truly talking about Solomon, but not ultimately talking about Solomon. And so we should recognize and understand that, oh, no, this is ultimately talking about the son of David, the king of Israel. So that brings me to some of the New Testament passages like the one I, I mentioned earlier, like 1 Corinthians one twenty four, which calls Jesus the wisdom of God. So if Solomon is participating in this shadowy proclamation of Christ, how, how do we get from wisdom being a woman to, to Christ? So let me, let me point you to some great statements that Dr. Jason DeRoshi said about how Christ is wisdom. He said, first, Christ's wisdom is shown in his teaching, greater than Solomon's, and proved by his deeds of power. Now that is referencing a story in, in Matthew where Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and Jesus is talking about the resurrection. The, the Pharisees ask for a sign and Jesus says, the only sign I will give you is the sign of Jonah. And, and they talk about that for a little bit. Uh, and he says, Nineveh repented when Jonah preached to them. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is before you. And the very next sentence, he says, the queen of the south beheld all of wisdom, Solomon's wisdom. And behold, something greater than Solomon is before you today. In both of those something greater than statements Jesus made, he's referring to himself. He is greater at preaching for repentance than Jonah was. He's greater at uh, saving people <laughs> than Jonah was. And he's greater wisdom than Solomon was. And, and then again, that second part of Dr. DeRoshi's statement, proven by his deeds of power, that was another statement that Jesus said where his demonstrations of power, his miracles, his signs, his wonders, where he was healing the sick, 
where he was feeding the hungry, where he was giving sight to the blind. He was raising not only other dead people, but then he climaxed all of it in his own resurrection. All of that proved that he is wise in his teachings, wise in his power, wise in his person. The next statement Dr. DeRoshi makes is the gospel message is the wisdom of God. And you can check that out in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. It's a divine wisdom derived from the creator whose previously hidden plan of salvation has become a reality through the crucifixion of Christ. So we, we just talked about this all along throughout the Old Testament. God was preparing his people through these shadows and types to see Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the anointed one to fulfill everything that had been talked about and prophesied in the Old Testament. It's the wisdom of God, but it's the folly of man. And by that, Paul means that mankind wouldn't have devised that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords would be brutalized and hung up on a cross and killed. That sounds really foolish to human ears, but it's the wisdom of God because that's the very method that God chose to save his people. Third, Dr. DeRoshi says that Christ is the wisdom of God who stands against the human folly of against the folly of human speculations that stand against him and who through his cross victory becomes our wisdom. So again, man doesn't understand the things of God. And so God's wisdom is exalted over the folly of man. And then through faith, as we see the crucified Christ and the resurrected Christ, Christ himself becomes our wisdom. Paul in in Philippians says that we have the mind of Christ. We have his spirit dwelling in us. So Christ becomes our wisdom and we love wisdom because of him. Fourth, Dr. DeRoshi says Old Testament imagery, including what I mentioned in, in Proverbs and then in other places like Sirach and Wisdom of Solomon, like I touched on, all of that Old Testament wisdom imagery is embodied in Paul's description to the Colossians of Christ being the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the beginning, the dwelling place of all the fullness of God, and the mediator of and craftsman over creation. Similarly, Paul's designation of Christ as being in the form of God and being equal to God also echoes how wisdom shares in God's nature and existed before creation. Fifth, Old Testament wisdom imagery is also part of Paul's portrayal of Christ's re-exaltation after his resurrection, where he was declared or appointed to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, and where, having obeyed even to the point of death, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And he's now exalted at the right hand of God, having ascended into the heavens. So in Proverbs, we get all of these really cosmic pictures of wisdom 
And because of everything, you know, I, I mentioned before, these images were personified as a woman. But then Paul takes all of these and applies them to Christ and says, this was a shadow, but here's the fulfillment of everything that Solomon didn't see fully yet. So is, is Jesus a woman? No. Was, was Solomon trying to describe a specific gender of pre- or post-incarnate Jesus? No. What he was doing was preparing us for Jesus and teaching us how to live in a way that honors and pleases the Lord and is practically a very, very good way of living. You know, if you if you follow the Proverbs, you're going to have a successful life because God is wise and it's reflected in what Solomon wrote in the Proverbs. So let me let me give you one caution. We have established that Christ is the wisdom of God. But to to safeguard against some heresy, I want to point out that he was not created. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became flesh and dwelt with us in the person of Jesus. But, just as Paul said and just as John says in Jesus, is not himself a created being, but eternally has existed with the Father as his word the, the theological term, in case you're curious, that we use is eternal generation. So, in eternity, the Son has always existed alongside the Father and the Son. They are one God together, three persons. Jesus was never created. However, there's another way that you can translate that Hebrew phrase as set up, or uh, you can think of that as kind of a, a coronation. So if you, if you take it that way, then yes, Jesus was set up as king over creation on the throne of David, but there was never a time that the word of God, God the Son, pre-incarnate Jesus, didn't exist, nor has there ever been a time, a timeless time, or an in-time time, uh, because eternity is hard to describe in human language. There's never been any time when God the Father has been without his wisdom. Even when Jesus was walking on earth, God the Father was still all wise, infinitely wise, and so is the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are all wise. And the theological term, uh, in case you're curious, is the simplicity of God, where God, though he exists in three persons, is one simple divine essence subsisting in three persons. Let me give you a quick summary. Wisdom is grammatically feminine, but more than that, wisdom is personified as a woman because King Solomon wanted his sons to follow 
and pursue right living in the attractiveness of lady wisdom, not the tempting adulteress of dame folly that leads to death. And in all of that, Solomon was trying to open our eyes to the coming reality that has now been fulfilled and revealed in Jesus. But he did it in the way that uh, biblical theology had been done up to that point. And he did it in the way that he knew how, in a shadow. And all of that was fulfilled in Christ, who is called the wisdom of God and greater than Solomon and the son of God in power. So friends, if uh, you don't know this Jesus as your own wisdom, I appeal to you uh, to seek him and find him for he is not far away in the words of Paul in Acts 17. Um, he may be unknown to you yet, but he doesn't have to be unknown to you right now. And I pray that you seek him and find him, for he is not far away. Soli Deo Gloria.